0: Oh, good morning. It's good to be with you. Normally, I would get up in the pulpit and I would ask you to turn to a specific passage in Scripture because we normally just start in verse one of a passage and we work our way through it. But this morning, I want to address a specific topic. It's a topic that I think has not received enough attention, it has not received enough teaching in the church. This morning's message is entitled, Grasping Your Emotions. The topic of emotions is a vital topic. It's one that we need to understand. Because churches do not teach about emotions. How many times have you heard someone teach on the issue of emotions? And Christians are left looking to the secular world to try to explain the emotions that they experience. And the world has offered a whole bunch of different views on what emotions are, how do they work, and what role they should play in your life. Some said that emotions are forces which you simply cannot control. They're external forces that there's really nothing you can do about them. You just have to mitigate or you know, manage them, making the Christian nothing more than a victim of their emotions. The best you could hope to do with your emotions, according to them, is just merely mitigate the effect. Others have said that the soul, that would be the immaterial part of you, the spirit, is divided in two. And part of your soul is for rational thinking, and part of your soul is for your emotions and your feelings. And these two are contrary to one another. Reason and emotion Thought and feeling, they're counterproductive. If you're going to be emotional, you can't be rational. And if you're going to be rational, you can't be emotional. According to them, emotion hinders your ability to think rationally. And therefore, emotions should be diminished, ignored, or just completely abandoned altogether. And when Christians adopt the view that emotions are contrary to logic that emotions are contrary to reason and thus should be mitigated and removed, they enter into a cold, lifeless, intellectual walk with God. They view God and it produces no emotional response whatsoever. If your view of God does not elicit some kind of emotional response, you probably have a wrong view of God. On the other side of the spectrum, there are those who advocate allowing your emotions to practically rule every single decision in every aspect of their life. They make decisions, but they don't make their decisions based on sound reasoning, on logic. They go to prayer and they start asking God for things, and they expect the answer to come in a mystical form. God's going to give me a feeling about this. If he wants me to do it, he'll make me feel good about it. They wait for some emotion or sensation. They chase after an emotional experience rather than chasing after Christ. And they only end up on an emotional roller coaster. With little hope of finding any peace or emotional stability. And they lose all hope. All of these views are wrong. This is not how the Bible describes your emotions. We need to have a biblical understanding of our emotions. We need to hear what God has to say, what our Creator has to say about our emotions. And in this sermon and in the next week, we will be looking at what the Bible has to say about this topic. And this morning, we're just going to be going to Scripture to find answers to one simple question What are emotions? I want to give you a biblical foundation of emotions. I've entitled this sermon, Grasping Your Emotions. Today that means grasping intellectually. What are we talking about when we say emotions? Now, I've been calling this a sermon. The reality is, this, this is going to be a little bit of a lecture because I'm going to be teaching and trying to convince you of a truth. And then there's going to be some exhortation in there as well. So it's going to be a, a mixture of a lecture and a sermon. So as Abner Chow said, it's a Lerman. But I do encourage you, please open up your Bible, follow along with me. It's a lot more interesting if you have your Bible in front of you and you're following along. Let's begin with our first answer to the question. What are emotions? First answer. Emotions are spiritually derived. Spiritually derived. That is to say, our emotions do not come from our physical body. Emotions are given to us from God and they originate from the immaterial part of you. They originate from your spirit. And if we want to understand this, we need to start by first understanding our nature. And in order to do that, we have to go to the beginning, because God made us, and he gave us emotions. And in fact, every aspect of your human experience, other than sin, was given to you by your creator. So to understand emotions, we need to start first by understanding what the Bible says about your creation. How you were made. Let's begin where scripture begins. Go over to Genesis chapter 1. I don't need to give you a lot of context in Genesis 1. You know the story. This is the story of creation. But in verses 26 and 27, God says something that is very interesting and it's relevant to our discussion. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice verse 26. Let us make man in our image. And then he repeats the same idea, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Three times in two verses, he repeats the idea that you are made in the image of God. So, what does that mean? When we say we're made in God's image, what are we talking about? The word here refers to an actual image, like a statue or an idol. In the ancient world, kings would conquer territories. And they would help the people of the area know who their king was and know who their new ruler was by erecting a statue of themselves. Of course, they did that in complete humility. They had statues made of themselves. And the statue was placed in the middle of the town. It was placed in the middle of the town so everybody who walked through the town would see the king. The statue's job was to announce to everyone the identity of who ruled there. Everybody who came in that town saw the statue, and that statue said, this is your king. Now, how did an inanimate statue made out of stone and metal announce that message? It did it because it was made in the image of the king. That is to say, it shared some of the king's physical attributes. It had the same nose, it had the same ears, the same lips, the same mouth, the same jawline. The facial expression that the statue had would be very similar to a common facial expression of the king. The statue had the king's body and he would even, the statue would be wearing the clothing that the king was known to wear. He may have a crown on its head. And when everyone saw the statue, they saw enough characteristics about that statue that they knew that's the king. And he's the one who rules here. The Bible says you are made in the image of God. You possess attributes that point back to God. Now I know there's some people who say you're you're an exact duplicate of God. No, you're not. That's heresy. These are communicable attributes that God has given to you, and he's given to every human being. And those attributes resemble and point back to him. And your presence in this world is a declaration that the creator rules here. What are some of those attributes that you've been given from God? We're only going to look at two. The first is intellect and reason. It's a unique trait that only humans have. No other creature in the world has the ability to think and to reason. You have the ability to analyze situations. You have the ability to predict cause and effect. You have the ability to determine various possible results of any given action before they occur. Because you can think through things. Animals don't have this. Peter in 2 Peter 2 verse 12, he's talking about false teachers And he says they are like unreasoning animals. Jude repeats the same idea in Jude 10. He says of the false teachers, but these men revile the things which they do not understand and things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. They know them by instinct. Instinct is divine programming. It's the code that they follow. And they're coded to behave in certain ways and they cannot behave outside of that coding. if you would like a good example of that think about a deer a deer is walking through the forest he hears something rustle he stops he looks it's a rabbit he keeps on walking he hears another noise he stops he looks it's a mountain lion what does the deer do he either stands there for a minute hoping the lion doesn't see him or he takes off running take the same deer put him in the middle of a highway and your headlights hit the deer. What does he do? He stops right where he is, and he doesn't move. His programming tells him you wait until you can figure out what it is before you move. He doesn't have Ford F-150s in his programming. He doesn't have the ability to reason and to think through the problem. You do. You have the ability to think rationally. You are made in the image of God, and he has given you the ability to think. And God doesn't want you to neglect that gift to follow your feelings. He's not pleased when Christians shut off their brains and follow the whims of every feeling and every emotion. Why is it over and over and over again the Bible calls you to think, focus on your mind, God made you in his image. And part of that means you have the ability to think rationally. And he expects us to do that. But that also means you have emotions. You have emotions because God has emotions. So what emotions does God have? We can just work backwards. If you're made in the image of God and your emotions come from him, well, what emotions do you experience in life? Love? Love? Anger, joy, sorrow, jealousy, hatred, fear, gladness. You guys experience all these emotions? You experience them because you are made in the image of God, and God has all of these emotions. Now, to be sure, none of his emotions are mixed with sin like ours are. But Scripture indicates that God experiences all of these emotions. Just like you. Turn over to Psalm 5. Now typically if you talk about the emotions God feels, people like to run to love. And I'm not going to do that this morning because, well, you already know that the Bible says God is love and I don't need to repeat that to you. But in Psalm 5, he focuses on on an emotion that people don't like to attribute to God. It's God's emotion of, of, of hatred. God has hatred. Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. God experiences hate. He hates those who practice iniquity. He hates those who live in sin. If you want more description of that, turn over to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6 gives us a longer list and a little bit more detail on what he means by What he hates. Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Let me just apply that for a moment. If that describes your life, if any one of those describe your life, if you utter lies, if you devise evil plans, if that's what you do, if that's how you live, God hates it. And according to Psalm 5, God hates you for doing it. This is not a sinful hatred. God is perfectly holy. This hatred is the result of his holiness. Because he is perfectly holy, because he is perfectly good, he must necessarily hate everything that is evil. Sin brings out God's hatred. And it incurs his anger. Turn over to 2 Kings. 2 Kings 13. Here we learn about the king of Israel. Israel here is a reference to the northern kingdom. After Israel had divided, there was a northern and southern kingdom. The Israel spoken of here, the king is the king of the northern kingdom. His name is Jehoaz. And Jehoaz was known for his profligate and sinful lifestyle. It's the very kind of lifestyle we just read about that God hates. That one. And not only did Jehoaz sin, but he led other people into sin. He led the entire nation of Israel to sin. Look at uh, 2 Kings 13, verse 2. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin. He did not turn from them. This king led the entire nation into sin. And the entire nation followed him into the sin. And God sees the sin, and it incurs his anger. Verse 3. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Yes, God experiences the emotion of anger. Like all of us experience the emotion of anger. The difference between God's anger and our anger is his anger is always righteous. Ours, honestly, is seldom righteous. God never loses control. He never lashes out in an emotional rage or fit. His emotions are always experienced and expressed with perfect control and with perfect holiness. But he does experience the emotion. And he made you in his image and he gave you the ability to experience that emotion as well. And this is a very, very important point that you need to consider. God experienced emotion in eternity past. Long before he created the physical universe. Long before he created man. God experienced emotion. Why do you need to consider that? Because modern psychology says your emotions, some in modern psychology say that your emotions are the result of nothing more than chemical processes in your brain. that when the chemical levels in your brain change, that's why you experience emotion, and that's the only reason you experience emotion. Yeah. According to the experts, the only reason you can experience emotion is because you have a physical body with a physical brain. And outside of your physicality, you could not experience emotion, according to modern psychology. Now let's connect those two. Does that fit with what we just learned about God? God in eternity past experienced emotion. If a physical body is required for you to experience emotion, how did God experience emotion before he created anything? Because God is not physical. God is a spirit. John 4.24, Jesus said, God is spirit. Spirits are defined as immaterial, non-physical beings. Spirits don't have bodies. They don't have physical brains. They don't have chemicals in their physical brains because, well, they're not physical. And we know this when Jesus was resurrected. Remember, all the disciples saw him but Thomas? And Thomas doubted whether it was true. And he said, I will not believe unless I see him and I touch his hand and touch his side. And Jesus appears to him, Luke 24 39. And he said to Thomas, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. If modern psychology is correct and emotions are nothing more than your physical body, then God could not have experienced emotions, and the Bible must be wrong. But the Bible isn't wrong. God experienced emotions when he is a spirit. His emotions are experienced and manifested through his immaterial being, through the spirit. You are made in the image of God. Your emotions are like his. Therefore, your emotions are derived from your spiritual being. They stem from your spirit. And I can give you a logical argument for this if you would like. Consider on the day that you die, regardless of what eschatology you hold to, the day that you die, if Jesus has not returned, your body will go where? Dust. Your spirit, your immaterial part, will go where? Heaven. Okay. While you're in heaven without your physical body, will you be able to experience joy? Of course. Of course. Will you be able to think in heaven without a physical brain? Of course. These are things that are not done through your body necessarily. They are done through the spirit. And your spirit animates your body. You physically experience emotions. If you've had deep emotions, you felt them physically. And you experience that because that's the spirit affecting the physical body how that happens we don't know the bible doesn't tell us every emotion comes with a physical experience you know what we call the physical experience a feeling it's your physical experience of an emotion and this is actually a problem because we so closely associate our our emo, uh, excuse me our feelings with emotion that it's hard for us to disconnect the two But emotion and feeling are not the same thing. Emotion is what happens in your soul and your spirit, and the feeling is the manifestation of that physically. Your spirit interacts with your body. Uh, When you get nervous, your palms get sweaty. You, You get a knot in your stomach. You can feel it. When a person is scared or fearful, their heart rate speeds up, they start breathing faster. Their palms get sweaty. These are all physical manifestations of that one emotion. A physical body is not required for you to have an emotion. It is required for you to have a feeling. It's required for you to feel it. And again, because we associate so much of our experience of emotions to feelings, it's difficult for us to disconnect the two. And to imagine experiencing an emotion without that physical experience. So, because of that, it's also difficult for us to imagine or understand how God or our souls in heaven could experience emotions when we don't have a physical body. It's hard for us to understand that, but we have to submit to what the Word says. The Word says God has emotions and God is a spirit. The first answer to your question what are emotions? Your emotions are spiritually derived. They come from your spirit. Second answer to the question. Your emotions originate in the heart. Or your emotions come from the heart. And by heart, of course, we're not talking about the thing that pumps in your chest. We're not talking about what pumps blood. When you see heart in the Bible, it refers to your center of consciousness. It's a very important concept in the Bible Proverbs 4:23 Watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. You could say watch over your thought life. The heart refers to the inner man. The inner life, the part of your life that no one knows about but you and God. Peter in 1 Peter 3:4 says the heart is the hidden person. Who are you on the inside? The heart is the you that no one sees. It's the you that only you and God know about. This is where your thinking and reasoning occurs. You think and you reason in your soul in the part that's called the heart. Turn over to Luke 5. Jesus reveals this here in Luke 5. Remember the story of the man they lowered through the roof? The man's lying on a bed. On a bed he's paralyzed and his friends can't get to Jesus, so they drop him down through the roof and Jesus tells this man that his sins have been forgiven. And the Pharisees start thinking to themselves. And what are their thoughts? Luke 5:21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? How do we know this was something they asked to themselves? Because Jesus answers their question. And look what he says, verse 22. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Thinking, reasoning, planning, all come from the heart. The heart is the immaterial part of you. Now stick with me. I know you're like, wait, we're talking about emotions, but you're off talking about thinking. Stick with me. I'm I'm getting there. You think and you reason in your heart. You also make plans in your heart. Paul encouraged the Corinthian church to give and to be cheerful givers. 2 Corinthians 97, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. You plan in your heart to give and you should give the way you planned. In scripture, the heart does not refer to a physical body part. It refers to the spirit to the immaterial part of you, which does your thinking, your planning, and your purposing. Your spirit, while you're on this earth, does utilize your brain. But again, when you die and go to heaven, before you get your new body, you will still be able to think when you get to heaven, even without the body. God has no physical brain, and yet God thinks. He has a mind, he has a will, he plans, he purposes. Thinking comes from the immaterial part of you, your spirit, which the Bible calls your heart. And this is where your emotions come from as well. And I want to do a quick Bible study to prove this. And this will connect here in just a moment. Turn over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, Paul is going to describe the emotion of love. And I want you to hear what he says here because he's opening his letter to this young minister. And in verse 3, he reminds Timothy that he wants Timothy to stay in Ephesus so that he could teach certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Timothy, if you're going to be teaching and preaching, don't get up there just to cause an argument. Don't get up there to cause a debate. That's not the goal of teaching and preaching. Paul what is the goal? What should he go up there to do? Verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The emotion of love is from what? The heart. It's to produce love. That's the goal of teaching. Other emotions are described as coming to your heart turn over to Psalm 13. In Psalm 13, the psalmist isn't speaking about love. He's talking about the emotion of joy. And he begins by questioning God. The first couple of verses, he's questioning God, how long are you going to delay? How long is it going to take for you to answer my prayer? And then verses 3 and 4, he describes his enemies as closing in. And he actually quotes them. He has every reason not to be joyful. If you just base it on his circumstances, there's no reason for him to have joy. But notice verse 5. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. To rejoice is to have joy. It's to express the emotion of joy. And it is his heart that expresses that emotion. It is his immaterial being. His spirit or his soul that has that emotion. Other emotions like gladness. Exodus 4, 14. God tells Moses, your brother Aaron's coming to you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Gladness, joy. Both of them come from the heart. Even anger comes from the heart. Go to a book we've been going to a lot lately, Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7. I know it feels like we just left Ecclesiastes, but we're going to be back for just two verses. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 9. Solomon says, Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. Don't be quick to have your heart filled with anger. If you struggle with anger, if you're finding that anger is a problem for you, let me just say this. Focusing on your behavior isn't going to change it. Focusing on the things that are around you and trying to change your environment won't change the fact that you're angry. Because the Bible says anger is in the heart. It's in the immaterial part of you. It's in your soul. And you have to deal with it there. You must deal with the heart, the seat of your emotions. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 10. Solomon repeats this idea that you need to deal with your anger. Ecclesiastes 11, 10. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body. This is obviously a reference to sinful anger. The wisest man in history says you should put it out of your heart. Get rid of it. Don't let it stick around. Let's look at one more emotion here in the heart. Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. This is the emotion of anxiety or worry. It's the fear of what might happen. And God is telling his people about a future restoration. What's going to happen in the future? And he wants to encourage them not to be anxious. Isaiah 35, verse 4. Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Tell those who are anxious and who are worrying in their heart, don't worry, don't be fearful. You know what's interesting about that statement? That restoration still hasn't come. What they were facing after this statement is judgment. Judgment would come before the restoration. And yet God tells them, don't be anxious. That means they can not be anxious in the midst of some of the worst circumstances. Their anxiety is not caused by their circumstances. By the events around them. If you judge it based on the events around them, they had every reason to be anxious. But anxiety and worry has nothing to do with the world around you. It comes from your heart, your immaterial part, your spirit. Emotions, whether they're good, like love and gladness, or they're negative, like anxiety, they don't come from outside of you. They come from the inside. They come from your heart. They are spiritually derived. This brings us to our third answer to the question. What are emotions? Your emotions are formed from thinking and beliefs. Your emotions are formed from thinking and beliefs. Like I've said, your emotions are not external forces that are beyond your control. Oftentimes it feels that way, doesn't it? I can't control how I'm feeling. Your emotions, by and large, are dependent upon what you think And what you believe. And that is why God told Israel not to be anxious. The emotion was not formed because of the world around them. The emotion of anxiety was formed because of what they were thinking and believing. Let me explain it a different way and then we'll go to scripture. Your mind is constantly evaluating. Your heart is constantly evaluating the world around you. It's constantly evaluating your circumstances, and it does it in microseconds. And it uses the knowledge and the beliefs that you currently have to make an assessment of your situation. And based on that assessment, it determines whether your circumstances are good or bad. And based on that assessment, your heart, your spirit, produces an emotion that emotion then is manifested in a feeling in your physical body. Let me give you a scenario. Little girl, six years old, she's on the playground. And God knows there's a really poisonous snake about one foot away from her. But she has no idea that the snake is there. And so she plays without fear. She has no worries, she has no concern. She has no concern about the snake because she has no knowledge of the snake, and her emotions are consistent with what she knows and what she believes. But the moment she sees the snake, her heart evaluates her situation, and she determines this is bad. That's a snake, I'm in trouble. And based off her own frailty, she recognizes that snake can hurt her. And immediately her heart says this is a bad situation and it produces an emotion. This time it produces the emotion of fear. That fear then produces physical effects in her body. Her heart starts beating faster. Her breathing speeds up. Her palms start sweating. She might start shaking because her body is now pumping adrenaline. So she has the energy to flee all because she gained new information. Her thinking changed. It went from I'm safe to I'm not safe anymore. But let me change that scenario just a little bit. Same girl, same situation, same snake, same distance away from her. But now she sees the snake and she doesn't recognize it as a poisonous snake. She thinks the snake is a toy, or at a minimum, a pet. And she doesn't realize how dangerous the snake is. And so her heart evaluates the situation, and it produces an emotion. It's not the emotion of fear. It's now the emotion of what? Joy. Happiness. I have a toy. I now have a pet. What changed? Nothing but her understanding of what the snake is nothing but what she knows, her knowledge of the snake. And once again, that emotion causes changes in her body. She has a feeling. That joy and excitement about the new toy produces adrenaline and happiness, and her heart beats faster. She has more energy to play. Okay. Well, that's a great theory. Let's look at it from the Bible. Turn over to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to start with God. And this isn't Perfect because God's emotions a little different than ours in the sense that He is infinite and perfect and holy, and we are not. In Genesis chapter 6, God evaluates his creation. He assesses their moral condition. Notice Genesis 6, verse 5: Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God assesses the character and the morality of man. And he assesses it based on his knowledge of his perfect standard. And his knowledge of his own law leads him to one inevitable conclusion. Man is absolutely corrupt. That knowledge and that conclusion are further explained in the very next verse. And they're explained by an emotion. Look at verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now, it would not be correct to say, when we're speaking of God, to say that his knowledge produced an emotion. Because that would suggest that he didn't have the knowledge before. And we know that's not true. It is correct to say that God's knowledge of man's sinfulness and his heart being grieved are connected. The grieving is clearly linked to God's evaluation of man's sinful state. And the term he uses here for grieved refers to sorrow. It refers to sadness. We can see this in a human. We'll look at the perfect human, Jesus. Matthew 9. If you want to turn there, Matthew 9, starting in verse 35. Jesus experienced emotions as a man. And he experienced them in the same way that you and I do, only he did it without sin. Matthew 9, will be starting in verse 35. Verse 35, Jesus, he says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus felt compassion for them. The term refers to the bowels, to the abdomen. In the ancient world, the abdomen was associated with emotion because oftentimes when you're very emotional, you feel it where? In your stomach. And so they began to associate emotion with the stomach And it eventually became synonymous with the heart. And here the term refers to empathy or pity. Why did he have empathy for them? Why did he have pity for them? Notice in verse 36, he says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. He looked at them. He assessed their condition. What is their condition? They were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus evaluates their condition based on his knowledge and his understanding and his beliefs and that produces an emotion. You can go one further. It wasn't just his knowledge of those people. But it was what Jesus believed about them. Jesus was a man of the word he believed that they were in, made in the image of God, that they needed care and guidance. That they bore his image and therefore it is right to show them compassion and mercy. And you may think, well, that's, that's, that doesn't really prove it. Because that's just what anybody would do. That's just the normal response. No, it isn't. Because the Pharisees looked at the same crowd. Saw the same condition. And did they have empathy and compassion for these people? Based off their beliefs based off their knowledge, they came to a completely different emotional response. And the response was, who cares what happens to them? We'll just tie up more burdens on them that they cannot carry. One more. Turn over to Deuteronomy 6. This is an important one. This is talking about the love that you have for God. The love of God. We're all Christians here. We all want to love God more. And you often hear people say, well, love isn't an emotion. No, that's not true. Love is an emotion. It's just most of the time when people deny it as an emotion, what they're really saying is love is not just a feeling, and that is true. True love is not some feeling that washes over you. You know, in the movies, the two lock eyes and sparks fly, and it's love at the first sight. And it's just something that kind of sweeps over you. That's not the biblical picture of love. In the Bible, the emotion of love stems from a knowledge of the person. It's not blind emotionalism. And this is especially true when we're talking about your love for God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, we find one of the most well-known statements in Scripture. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And you say, well, yeah, I'd love to do that. How do I do that? What's the secret to having this experience of this emotion? He answers the question in the next three verses. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. How do you love God with all of your being? How do you grow in your love for God? Fill your mind, that is, fill your heart with knowledge about God. With the true knowledge of who God is. And that will lead you to the godly emotion of love. We've seen three answers so far to our question What are emotions? Your emotions are spiritually derived, your emotions come from the heart, your emotions are formed from thinking and beliefs. Finally, the fourth answer. And this will be a quick one. Your emotions are relevant. Your emotions are relevant. Oftentimes in reform circles especially, we have a tendency to become like the Stoics. And you hear people say silly things like feelings don't matter. It doesn't matter how you feel. And in some instances that is true. It doesn't matter how you feel. If we're talking about obedience, it doesn't matter how you feel. But such broad statements lead people to the wrong conclusion. It makes people think that your emotions are irrelevant. You don't need to worry about them. You don't need to be concerned about them. That they have no part in your life. And they are relevant. They are extremely relevant and important to your life. How are they relevant? First, your emotions motivate behavior. Your emotions motivate behavior. The term emotion, I've been using it a whole bunch of times today actually comes from a French word which means to stir up. Your emotions were given to you by God to motivate you to act on what you know. They're intended to get you to act not on the emotion, they're intended to get you to act on the truth of what God has said. What you know is the reason you act. The emotion provides the motivation to act. It provides the energy to act. In the example of the little girl finding the poisonous say earlier, her fear motivated her to leave. And this is also true spiritually. Second Corinthians 7, Paul talks to the Corinthians about a letter that he has sent to them. And he said that his letter had made them sorrowful. And he tells them, look, I'm not going to apologize for making you sorrowful. Why not? He says, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Godly sorrow comes when a person has the knowledge of the truth. They have a knowledge of their own sinful condition. And they despise that condition. And that sorrow compels them to flee from their sin, and to make the sacrifice necessary for true repentance. I would say your emotions there are very relevant. Second, your emotions are relevant because they reveal what you truly believe. People say that the eyes are the heart, or the window to the soul. Emotions are the window to the soul. Have you ever told someone, "Look, hey." Uh, I think we really need to go confront this person about some sin in their life. That's what the Bible tells us to do. And the person agrees with you. That is exactly what the Bible says. It says, go confront sin. But their response to you is more like, yes, but I don't feel like we should be confronting their sin. I just don't think it's very loving. I just want to be loving and just listen to what the person has to say. They don't realize it, but they just revealed what they truly believe. Because based on their emotions and their feelings, they are willing to ignore Scripture. If your emotions and feelings contradict Scripture, it's not because some outside force that is beyond your control disagrees with Scripture. Your emotions contradict Scripture because your emotions stem from your thoughts, your thinking, and your beliefs. And your emotions are pushing you away from Scripture because that's what you actually believe. And that is only further proven when you go and you act on how you feel rather than what God says. And this is the last reason that emotions are relevant. We've been talking about emotions this morning from the perspective of just how they function in us. But what I haven't gotten to and what I don't have time to get to this morning is that God commands you. God commands you to experience certain emotions. And God commands you to avoid other emotions. And he will judge you based on how well you do that. Like I said, I wish I had time to cover that this morning. But that's what week two is for. Part two is next Sunday. And we'll cover that then. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are made in your image. You have given us emotions. Emotions add life and vitality to our life. What would love be without the emotion? What would your love be to us if we did not experience that emotion? Father, we just ask that you would help us to correct our thinking, to follow what your word says, and let your word and that knowledge produce the kind of godly emotions that you would have for us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.